0: Welcome to Sovereign Grace. My name is Chad. I'm a senior pastor here. I'm glad that you are here with us this morning. That said, turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 26 this morning. Genesis 4 and verses 17 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael. And with Mahujael, fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Lemech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lemech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this as what it is, your word to your people, inspired by your spirit through your servant Moses. We pray that we would hear your voice as you speak to us. We pray for those who trust in Christ that you would cause us to look evermore to him. We pray for those who are here who do not trust in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe so that they would be saved. Help us to understand the self-exalting, self-sufficient city of man that has come about as a result of the fall into sin, and help us to long for, to hope in, to look forward to the city of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's Easter, so I'm going to say it. He is risen. You know, we say that every Easter, and I see it on social media every Easter. And friends, I want to be clear that we gather every Lord's Day to make that same confession. We gather the first day of every week because we confessed Christ is risen. But when we say he is risen, I wonder about this. Has that ever caused you, when we say that he is risen, has that ever caused you to give much thought to what that says about your citizenship status? I recognize that when we say he is risen, you all think, that's good. Jesus has conquered sin and death. He is holy, righteous, undefiled. That's good. That means I'm saved. My sin was atoned for on the cross. The grave no longer has hold on me. I've been redeemed. But have you ever thought when we say he has risen, have you ever thought that has implications for my citizenship status? Now whenever we're talking about our citizenship status, we're referring to what city we belong to. Now we might call that now a nation or a state, but our citizenship is found in a particular city. So that when we travel to a foreign country or city, we know that we are Foreigners. Listen, even though you're from the United States of America, you know when you just travel to Los Angeles, you think, I'm a foreigner. We know we're foreigners. That foreign city is not where we hold our citizenship. It's not our home. And no matter how nice that foreign city, you know you're not home there. It's apparent to you that you're a stranger or a foreigner. Well, this Easter morning, I want to talk about our citizenship with regard to two cities. The city of man and the city of God. Those two cities. The city of man, when I say that, it's a way of speaking about the old creation that's fallen in Adam. We know this old creation has fallen, it's corrupted. We know it's subject to judgment and death. This creation and frankly our whole man and all the God-given institutions found herein have all been subjected to corruption in some way by Adam's fall into sin and death. And we come together every Easter and we come together every Lord's Day to rejoice in the reality that Christ has resurrected and has redeemed us from sin and death. For we know that Christ was delivered up to the cross for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Romans 4.25 We gather together knowing that we have already been spiritually resurrected from the dead through faith in Jesus. For we believe what Jesus said in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed has passed from death to life. In other words, we gather every Lord's Day to rejoice in our redemption into a new city, into an eternal hope, into a city whose architect and builder is God, into a city that we'll call the City of God. And Sovereign Grace, we come together every Easter and every Lord's Day, knowing that our true citizenship is in heaven, in the city of God, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 18-22. We come together every Easter and every Lord's Day to ascend to the city of God by the Spirit to get a taste of our eternal dwelling with Him. That's what we're told in Hebrews 12, 22-24. We've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, and we come together every Easter and every Lord's Day in hope for that great day when Christ will return and physically resurrect us and bring us home to the city of God, to eternal glory. For we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory revealed in us. We know that the creation groans under eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God, for the redemption of our bodies. Now, while we dwell here in the city of man, while we dwell here in the city of man, this old fallen creation in Adam, We gather weekly to worship Christ and to cast our gaze upon our eternal hope in the city of God, in the new heavens and the new earth. So Easter Sunday, and friends, every Sunday, is a sign that we do not live for this old creation. We do not live for this city as man, but we have a better hope a better city, a city whose architect and builder is God. And this morning I want to look at the beginning of these two cities. I want to look at the beginning of the city of man, if you will, and, and the promise of the coming city of God. And I want to do that by looking at two offspring of Adam and Eve. I want to look at Cain. And you're used to hearing me say Abel. Cain already killed Abel where we are now. Want to look at Cain and Seth? Cain and Seth. These two offspring are the beginning of two cities, and I want to challenge you to consider. Here is the question I want you to consider: In which city have you made your home? In which city have you put down roots? For which city do you live, and in which city do you find your hope? So here's how the sermon will break down. First, we're going to consider the city of man. And we're going to look at the city of man in Genesis 4, 17-24. And then second, we're going to consider the city of God. And we're going to look at the city of God in Genesis 4, 25-26. So let's look first at the city of man. Look at Genesis Four seventeen, Genesis 4.17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, I want you to think a bit about our context here. I'll deal specifically with the name of Enoch a bit more next week when we get to Genesis 5, at least I hope to. But I want to consider our context. I want to remind you of where we are in Genesis. This is still part of the story of creation as told through a focus upon Adam and Eve that began in Genesis 2-4. We get the genealogies. Remember I told you Genesis is arranged around these ten genealogies. And the first genealogy is announced in Genesis 2-4. The next genealogy will be announced in Genesis 5. So we're still in the section of the first genealogy about the story of creation as told through a focus upon man, specifically Adam and Eve. God had created Adam and Eve, if you remember, with a body and a rational and immortal soul in true righteousness and holiness. He created man to dwell with him in the Garden of Eden. He created man, Adam and Eve, to bear his image across the earth. He created them male and female and gave them marriage and commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And remember in Genesis 2, he created Adam as a farmer, a worker of the ground, who was both a king who would subdue the earth and rule on behalf of the Lord, and a priest who would serve in and guard God's dwelling place. In worship, God gave them abundant life and provision in the original creation. He also spoke to them, giving not only his moral law, which was written on their hearts, but a positive law, a law they would not have known apart from special revelation, where they were told, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die or you'll die. But we know that Satan, in Genesis 3, slithered into the garden and deceived Eve, and she ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as did Adam, who was with her. They rebelled against God and his law. In that context, God cursed the serpent, the woman, and the man. In the context of the curse, God said there would always be enmity between two seeds. Genesis 3.15. Always be enmity between two seeds. In the context of his curse upon the serpent. There would be the seed of the serpent who would always be at war with the seed of the woman. And these two stories this morning of Cain and Seth are paradigmatic Of these two seeds, or of the two cities. These are the stories of first, Seth and the elect children of God, the offspring of the woman, and second, Cain, or the unbelieving children of the devil, the offspring of Satan. But this war between the two seeds, this war between the two cities, will not continue forever for when god cursed the serpent he made a promise that the seed or the offspring of the woman would come and he would crush the serpent's head he would be the coming messianic king and savior now adam and eve believed the lord they believed the promise and the Lord covered their sins, their guilt, their shame, but yet they were still exiled from the Garden of Eden, put outside the gate, unable to enter where God dwells. And it seems that they remained just east of Eden, right outside the garden near the gate that they could not re enter through. And there they conceived hundreds of children and grandchildren. But the first children that we read about are Cain and Abel. Cain being their firstborn, Abel their second. And if you remember the story, Abel trusted the Lord and obeyed him. And at the designated time, Abel brought of the firstborn of his sheep. Cain trusted in himself and disobeyed the voice of the Lord. And at the designated time, he brought an offering of the leftovers of his fruit rather than his first fruits. The Lord was pleased with Abel and not with Cain, so Cain plotted to kill his brother Abel. God patiently called upon Cain to faith and repentance and warned him not to allow the sin crouching at the door of his heart to master him. But sadly, Cain listened to his own voice rather than the Lord, and Cain rose up and killed Abel. Then the Lord judged Cain and drove him further east of Eden. Cain was driven away from his family, further away from God's presence, and God's people. And throughout Genesis will ring this notion of these wicked cities are the cities far east of Eden. The places where God doesn't dwell. Like Babel in the east. Like Sodom and Gomorrah in the east. But look at Genesis 4.16 Because this is the context we come to in verse 17. Then Cain, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And settled in the land of Nod, or the land of wandering, east of Eden. And in this context, in the context of that, all that I just told you, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the city, after the name of his son, Enoch. And Genesis 4.17, frankly, if you've been paying attention to the context of this book, sort of smacks you in the face. He's driven east of Eden, into the land of Nod, the land of wandering, under the curse, away from God's presence. And he builds a city. And he names it after his son. Now, I want us to consider Cain's city. And really Cain's city-building offspring or family, if you will. This city that Cain builds is paradigmatic of the city of man. The city in which we all dwell right now, where we live. And I want to look at Cain's city of man really under two parts. In verse 17... I want to consider his man-centered or self-centered end. The end of self-exaltation in his city. And in verse 18-24, I want to look at his perverted city. In other words, the way the city of man perverts God's creation. So let's look first at his man-centered or self-centered end or goal. Look at verse 17. For Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Note two quick items here. First, he built a city, and second, he names the city after his son Enoch. He built a city. Now, I would argue that the building of the city is not the fundamental problem. In fact, I would argue that it's precisely what was being done through Adam and the original creation. Adam was commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth. There was going to be a spreading population of men and women under God's rule, dwelling with him, subduing the earth, and listening to his voice prior to the fall. Now it would be God's city, ultimately built by God, but through his vice regents, the man and the woman. It was a city of God, a city where Yahweh's name ...was exalted, where Yahweh's name was held up and worshipped. But Cain names the city after his son Enoch. Cain is building his own city. Something separate and apart from the city of God. Cain was self-sufficient in his own mind when he came to bring his offering. And he continues in his self-sufficiency... And in his self-exaltation here. He's building a city that's exalting his own son. Now, what's he doing there? If you will, Cain is leaving a legacy for his family name. I know you're often encouraged to leave a legacy for your family name. And I'm not going to speak to that and all that folks mean by that. But I want you to hear what Cain's driving desire is. To leave a legacy For his family name, Cain and his offspring are focused on one great end. You know what their one great end is? The exaltation of their own names. They want to be honored, remembered, held in high esteem. They want to leave behind a legacy for their name. This is what all the children of fallen Adam want. This is the fundamental problem of humanity apart from the Lord. We want to make a name for ourselves. Look at Genesis 11. Genesis 11 and verse 4, the Tower of Babel. As they build this tower, verse 4 of Genesis 11, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed ...over the face of the whole earth. Apart from the work of God's Spirit giving us new hearts and new minds... ...we want nothing more than self-exaltation. Nothing more. And we will lie and steal and kill to get it. Friends, pride... The desire for self-exaltation is the fountainhead of all other sins. Listen to what St. Augustine said about this in the City of God. And so you know, I'm getting the language City of Man and City of God from him. As he commented on this passage. But listen to what he says. Pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation, when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. Do you hear that? Pride is the craving for undue exaltation. And undue exaltation is when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end. And becomes a kind of end in itself. Pride is when you live for yourself. Pride is when you live for the honor of your own name. Rather than for God and for the honor of his name. Pride is when you want your name to be left on buildings. So that all remember you. Rather than to die and be in an unmarked tomb. So that all forget you. We see that with Cain, don't we? He hates Abel because God is pleased with Abel and not with him. So he wants him dead. He is cursed and exiled, and he doesn't repent. Rather, Cain builds a city for the exaltation of his own name. With that said, let's consider our second part with regard to Cain's building a paradigmatic city of God. Let's consider Cain's perversion of God's creation, his perversion of it. Look at Genesis 4 and verse 18. And I want you just to hear the whole thing. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adda bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. Zillah also bore Cain; He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now Derek Kidner, Old Testament commentator, comments that this is the first biblical account of a self-sufficient society. Which is the essence of what the New Testament calls the world. A self-sufficient, self-exalting society. We have here in Cain's paradigmatic city a description of his children and grandchildren, of their cultural achievements, and of their perversion of God's created order. Look at Genesis 4.20. Genesis 4.20. Adabor Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So this kind of ranching that comes along. Or look at 421. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. So music. And look at 422. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So metalworking. Now, these secular vocations are not wicked in and of themselves. God created man to subdue the earth. He created us with rationality and with the industrious capacity to control our environment. And we see these technological, economic, political, and cultural achievements. But alongside of these technological, economical, political and cultural achievements, is running a story about the exaltation of man, the self-sufficiency of man. Man is not doing this to fulfill his vocation or calling before God. Man is doing this to exalt his own name because he trusts in himself. So his political, technological, economic, and cultural achievements are not for the purpose of subduing and ruling over and enjoying the earth for the glory of God. Rather, his achievements are for the purpose of using the earth for the glory of man. The problem in the city of man is not that it lacks the industrious capacity to control its environment, but that it lacks the moral virtue to control itself. The city of man has vast technical and artistic skill, but no godly virtue. Let's look at this further by looking at Lemek's speech. Look at verse 23 and 24. Lemek said to his wives. We can stop there for a minute. Note the phrase said to his wives, plural. It's important that we do not fail to notice what Moses is telling us. Lemek is the first story of bigamy that we see in Scripture. Look at Genesis 4.19. Look up to verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Lamech took two wives. That is clearly a violation of the pattern of marriage set down in Genesis 2.24. That a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Singular. And the two, not the three or the four, the two, Shall become one flesh. The city of man has already begun to pervert the God given institution of marriage. And folks, if you haven't seen the city of man perverting the God given institution of marriage in our culture, you haven't been looking around. Please do not miss this. The fundamental problem with the city of man is not that there are socio political and cultural institutions like marriage or government or technological, economic, and cultural achievements and secular vocations. The fundamental problem is that the city of man perverts those institutions and achievements for the sake of self-exaltation and does them out of a drive for self-sufficiency. Now let's keep looking. Look at verse 23. Note the names of his wives, Adah and Zillah. We're told that twice. The name of the one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. And then in verse 23, Lemech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah. It seems that in the Hebrew, Adah means something like pretty face, and Zillah means something like sweet voice. With these names, scholars argue that Moses may be tipping his hat to the notion that Lemech is a man consumed with sensuality. Further, look at his audacious speech, this boast he makes before his beautiful wives. I mean, Lemek is going to make a speech before his wives and boast about himself. You guys have maybe seen men find ways to sort of, you know, raise their peacock feathers, if you will, around women to make a showing. Here's what Lemek is doing. I have killed a man, listen to what I say, look what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. In this speech, Lamech announces that he is above the lex talionis. In other words... He is above the law of retaliation set down in the law of God. God's law commands an eye for an eye. And Lemech essentially boasts before his wives that an eye for an eye is insufficient justice for him. Rather, he says, in exchange for a bruise, I'll kill a man. That man might wound me, I will kill him. Further, lemek boasts... That the fullness of justice God promised to any man who murders Cain, any man who murders you Cain will get sevenfold of full justice is not sufficient for Cain. I will give even greater justice than God. My justice will be 77-fold. Herein, Lamech is devouring both marriage and human life. He arrogantly alters the institution of marriage. And he egotistically exalts his own murderous and tyrannical form of justice. Everything about this passage demonstrates that we are able to marshal the human intellect and rationality that we've been given as image bearers to subdue the earth in a variety of ways, while at the same time we are tragically unable to subdue ourselves. Cain's family and the, their city, or the city of man, is a microcosm of human history, isn't it? It's a microcosm of humanity seeking the honor of its own name, believing it's sufficient in and of itself, and its ultimate goal is self-exaltation. You know you should look at yourself and say, you are enough. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you are not enough. You guys seen that? Nonsense. You are not enough. I have news for you. You are not enough. And that's good news because God is enough for you. Cain's family and their city of man is just that, though. A microcosm of human history. Fallen man has perverted God's creation The capacities and institutions that God has given to man. And they've been perverted by man seeking self-sufficiency and self-exaltation. So now post-fall we all live in this city of man. In this sinful, perverse, self-exalting world. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of an aside or a caveat. Because I don't want you to misunderstand me. Here's my fear. When I'm saying all this... I don't want to encourage you toward a sort of run-for-the-hills fundamentalist separatism. Like, it's all evil. Let's run away from all of it. I'm not saying this world that God created lacks all goodness, truth, and beauty. And that you should seek to escape somewhere and build a Christian commune. It's not what I'm saying. I mean that man has perverted all that God created, seeking to honor his own name. The city of man in which we live may be governed. Please hear this. It may be governed more or less in accord with God's law and with the nature of man and the way God made things. And inasmuch as the city of man is governed in accord with the law of God, it is relatively good. Inasmuch as the city of man is governed in accord with the reality of how God made things, or with nature, that's relatively good or true. Inasmuch as the city of man is governed in accord with what the city is supposed to be, what humanity is to be, we see some pictures of beauty. This is why we can objectively identify what forms of government or family or society, or economics, or justice, or culture are better for human flourishing and more in accord with God's justice and human nature. That's why having a vocation in secular institutions of the city of man can be good and honorable. Those institutions are corrupted by the fall so that most who work, work for the glory of man. But as a believer, you can do your work in the city of man for the glory of God. This is why giving your life for your country in the military, or serving the state as a police officer, or a firefighter, or a city planner, or a judge, or a politician, are callings that can be good and honorable. Though the city of man may do and pervert those same vocations for the exaltation of man, as a believer you can do them for the glory of God. That's why marriage and reproduction and the raising of children by a mom and dad can be good and honorable. While the city of man may use and pervert those good gifts for the exaltation of man, as a believer you can do the same, you can do these for the glory of God. We are able to distinguish justice and injustice, good and evil, beauty and ugliness, truth and lies, reality and fiction. Even unbelievers can distinguish those things, though they often suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We can measure the effectiveness of different economic, social, and cultural systems on human flourishing. We can create state governments that are better for human flourishing. Indeed, the love of God and neighbor mean that we ought to try to create them. God gave us the state for the purpose of human flourishing. We ought to be thankful for it and engaged as citizens in it. I'm not saying run away. But what I want you to grasp is that the city of man exists as it does due to sin. It is a perversion of God's creation. And you and I live in the city of man, that old creation, and we ought to do so while we live here for the glory of God, which is what I'm going to get into in a second. The question really is this. How are you living here? In other words, are we living here as those who are exalting God's name or our own? Are we living here as sojourners, foreigners, Citizens of another country looking forward to the city of God, or are we making this city of man our ultimate home? And that leads to our second main point this morning, the city of God. Look at Genesis 4:25 and 26. Let's look just at verse 25 first. And Adam knew his wife again. We're back to Adam. Notice that? Abel's been righteous. Abel's been murdered. Wicked Cain's been exiled. And in the 130th year of Adam's life, which we read in Genesis 5, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now this is a passage that's filled with good news, and it functions like the preview to a movie functions. We sort of see this in the genealogies, the way Genesis is laid out. You kind of get a preview of what's to come in the next genealogy. And you're getting that sort of here. You're getting a preview of what's to come in Genesis 5. But note what we see in this text. First, note that we return to Adam, knowing his wife Eve and bearing another son. And what's the son named? Seth. Now, why? Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Seth's name is pointing to his appointment. In fact, his name sounds like the Hebrew for appointment. And the contrast here is intentional. Seth will be like righteous Abel. He will believe and obey the voice of God. He will not be living in self-sufficiency and for self-exaltation, but he will depend upon God and exalt his name. Seth, unlike the murderer Cain, will be the seed of the woman rather than the seed of the serpent. Seth is a new beginning of the seed of the woman and thus of the city of God. Look at Genesis 4.26. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice the important sort of play on words that's happening here. Seth fathered a son and called his name Enosh, which generically means man and really has sort of connotation of an ordinary or weak man. An ordinary or weak man. That's how Seth names his son. It's not a name that exalts his son or his family line. Further, we read this. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, depending on the translation, and I'll tell you this, if you go back all the way back to someone like Irenaeus in the 2nd century, he translates it this way because of the way the Hebrew for began to be called is passive. He translates it that at that time people began to be called by the name of the Lord. That at that time people began to be called by the name of the Lord. In other words, that would answer the question of who are the sons of God in Genesis 6. The people being called by the name of Yahweh or the line of Seth. Now, that may be or may not be. What I want you to understand, though, is whether they're calling upon the name of the Lord or they're being called by the name of the Lord, they are people who are living for the exaltation of God's name and not their own. They're his people. They're the seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. They belong to the city of God, ultimately, not the city of man. And look at the wordplay at the end of Genesis 4.17. Look at 4.17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city. Now, that called the name in Hebrew sounds just like what you see in Genesis 4.26. The same words. So Seth also was born a son, and he called his name. He called his name. There's a contrast between he called the name of the city after his son Enoch, and they called upon the name. They called upon the name. The same Hebrew words for call, at that time people began to call upon the name, and name, and it's intentional. He is pointing to the fundamental distinction between the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is the self-sufficient, self-exalting, unbelieving world of men. The city of God is the God-dependent, God-exalting, Christ-trusting assembly of the elect. The city of man is the unbelieving world that takes counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The city of God is the believing people of God who trust the Messiah, who kiss the Son, and who are blessed as they take refuge in him. And this is really where I want to sum things up. The city of God is entered only. The city of God is entered only. By those who are redeemed. Who are redeemed by the son of God. The Christ. You're born into the city of man. You are born again. Into the city of God. The father in love. Sent. Sent his eternally begotten Son, to take humanity to himself. And the Son came as the incarnate Christ to suffer in this old creation, to suffer unjustly at the hands of the city of man. He came to suffer under the temptations of Satan. The Son came to listen to and obey the voice of God in all things, Christ then paid our penalty on the cross that's due to us for our sins. He rose from the dead. Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week on Sunday, conquering sin and death. And being vindicated as holy and innocent and undefiled. He rose as the first fruits of the resurrection. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he entered into the Holy of Holies, presented the sin-atoning offering of his own blood, and his work being finished, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. From where he rules and reigns and ever intercedes from us, and from where he sent his Spirit to apply his work to us. And through faith in his name, We become citizens of the city of God, and we receive him and all his benefits. That city of God with Christ is where our ultimate citizenship lies, believers. The question this Easter morning is, which city is your true home? Which city is your true home? Is your heart at home here in the city of man, in this old creation? Is your gaze upon this world and what it offers? Is your life lived for the present world and its benefits? Or Do the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of Christ's glory and grace? In other words, is your heart's true home in the city of God, where Christ is? Do you live here in the city of man as a permanent resident? Or do you live here as a sojourner longing for the city whose architect and builder is God? Friends, if you do not know Christ, if you are living for this world and its benefits, I implore you to repent of your sins, and your rebellion, and to look to Christ in faith and be saved. So if you do not know Christ, death and judgment are your future. That's your future. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. He will return to utterly destroy all of his enemies, all those who do not believe, all those who call the city of man their home. And he will cast them together with Satan, that wicked serpent, into eternal hell. So if you do not know Christ... Then look to him and be saved. He will forgive you for your sins, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and welcome you as citizens into the city of God. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to believe and repent of your sins and be saved after the service if you'd like to talk to me about it. You could talk to the people who maybe invited you about it. But it is of utmost importance. That you answer this question. Where is your home? Are you staking your home and your hope here in the city of man or there in the city of God where Christ is? Sovereign grace, if you do know Christ, then set your eyes upon Jesus. Set your minds in heaven where Christ is. Live as sojourners in this world. Do you know what that means? It means that if home is where the heart is, then your heart is set in heaven with Christ. And that's the home you long for. So that the things of this world no longer have a grip on you. The applause of men are no longer what you're longing for. You are able to give everything and yourself away freely because you know you're just a sojourner here. This is not your true home. You're able to give away your reputation for the sake of the glory of Christ. You're able to, like we see folks in New Testament, give away your possessions for the sake of the glory of Christ. You're able to cross land and sea to make Christ known where he is not for the sake of the glory of Christ because your home isn't here. This isn't it. It isn't found in the familiarities of the things you like where you've grown up. in the things people say about you and the reputation you've built and the legacy you think you've left behind. It's found with Christ. That's your home. That's why we give away, if you will. We set aside one day every week to worship God because we want to mark out the fact that we recognize this secular earth, this city of man, is not our ultimate home. We long to be with Christ. We aren't having to continue in those secular employments and entertainment seven days a week because that's not what our life is for. It's to be with Him. Let us long for the city of God. As Augustine said, and I'll conclude with him, I think it's fitting, for the true city of the saints is in heaven. Though on here on earth it produces citizens in whom it wanders as on a pilgrimage through time looking for the kingdom of eternity. When that day comes, it will gather together all those who rising in their bodies shall have that kingdom given to them in which along with their prince, the king of eternity, they shall reign forever and ever. He is risen, so we look forward to that great day. And we cry out with John, Maranatha. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to trust in Christ, to look to him, to set our hearts and our minds in heaven with him as your people. We pray that the things in this world would be growing more and more strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, that we would... We're being sanctified so that our hands are released, our grip is taken off of this world and set upon heaven where Christ is, that we might dwell with you in glory for eternity. Let us long for the city of God where our true citizenship lies, and let us live as sojourners, as strangers, foreigners, aliens in this world, ever dependent upon you and always wanting to exalt the name of Christ. Thankful for the good gifts you've given and never exploiting them for ourselves or our own name, but enjoying them for the exaltation of your name. Knowing they've been given to us from your hand and thus having gratitude for such gifts. We pray, Father, for those who do not look to Christ that you would be pleased to convert them, that you would give them life. Give them new birth into the city of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In him alone we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.